You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. Heather Rogers is the author of Gone Tomorrow, The Hidden Life of Garbage. Welcome to the program, Heather. Hi, Rick. Thanks for having me. Heather, this is an amazing book, and I'd like to start with what I found a very interesting part of it, the history of garbage. Garbage is not an ancient invention. It's rather recent, isn't it? Yeah, that's something that a lot of people don't really know. We think that garbage is something that we've always had to deal with. And in fact, that's the story that our culture tells itself, is that garbage has been around since the beginning of of time. Cavemen had garbage and, and sort of there's this idea that it's just a natural byproduct of, of being a human in the world. But in reality, the g- garbage as we know it today, modern garbage, uh, the packaging, the, all of the you know, electronic waste and, and all these new kinds of waste, obviously some of them are, are newer than others, but this kind of modern waste, the, the high amount, the high levels of waste that we have, the quantity and also the toxicity of it is very new. And a lot of it really came about in, in the 20th century, but, but definitely as a result of, of the Industrial Revolution. Tell us a little bit about the transition from the no-garbage world of the pioneers who crossed America and couldn't afford to throw anything away to what happened in the early 20th century to change that? In the the late 19th century, about 7% of what was discarded was manufactured goods. And today, it's about 80% of what gets thrown away in the U.S. is manufactured goods. So obviously, manufacturing plays a really large part in explaining why we have as much waste as we do and, and why we have the kinds of waste that we have. So basically what happened is you go from an economy that's based on, on labor and making things in the home. It has a different relationship to labor than an industrialized economy. With the Industrial Revolution, there's all these changes that happen. People move to cities to work in factories. They no longer have space to store the cast-offs of daily life, which they used to reuse and, and remake into new items for other uses. They would repair things. And also, they have money. So it's, and, and manufactured goods are cheaper than they used to be. So it's possible now, with industrially produced goods and the jobs that come along with those, it's, it's now possible to buy the things that you need. So... In the 1847 edition of Catherine Beecher's treatise on domestic economy, she talks about uh, how she tells her readers how to make soap and candles from leftover ash uh, and grease. But then in the 1869 version of her treatise, she says, buy those things ready made. So there's this huge shift that goes on where people start buying the goods that they need for their daily lives in stores instead of making those things themselves out of the waste that they, you know, would be recycling and reusing. I'd like you to tell me a little bit about what I kind of called the happy abattoirs that predated garbage when people would comb through the boneyards to to get these ingredients. They existed differently in different places. In, In New York City, there's an interesting kind of scenario that would unfold where 
the a lot of butchers and also wage laborers and poor people, unemployed people, would would let that they would keep animals. Obviously, butchers would keep animals, and they would let them graze off the garbage in the streets. And this was this was a free resource that they could use. And so, it it played a role in terms of what the working people and poor people had a certain amount of independence from from being wage laborers this this gave them access to a free essentially free source of protein so they could feed their their hogs off of the garbage commons in the streets now uh the abattoirs that you're talking about they're you know so so you have you have these animals roaming the streets i'm just trying to give a, a picture of what this w- looked like and then you have a lot of the, the waste from the abattoirs and also a lot of other waste just being dumped in the street in the 19th century city. And, and you know, these were pretty gory wastes and, and very smelly. And a lot of these things were dumped also into the water. You know, if there was a nearby waterway, that they would be dumped in, into that waterway. And so what you, what you end up with is basically... A, an incredibly unsanitary and dangerous daily street life. And and this is very problematic. I mean, it's hard for us to really imagine what that's like today, but at the time, I mean, it was it was incredibly dangerous and it led to a lot of work on on the part of the ruling class which created civic organizations to clean the streets. And that built up momentum and led to the progressive era city beautiful movement. So these abattoirs that you're talking about, there was extensive and intensive reuse of materials in the 19th century. And this is something, again, that we think is new. Like we're, we're enlightened now, we've started to recycle. But in fact, the reuse of goods was comprehensive in the 19th century. And well into the 20th century, there were municipal composting programs in the U.S. In, through the 1920s. And so there were operations like in New York on Barron Island, where they would take all of these wastes, they would take horse carcasses and bones and uh, separate the meat from the bones and use, you know, use all of these resources, use the blood, use the bone for uh, refining sugar, uh, for buttons, for any number of, of different uses. And so the relationship to what got discarded was profoundly different than it is today, because the things that were thrown away were considered to still have value and to still have uses. And, you know, even the last, the dregs that were left behind that were seen to have, you know, didn't seem to have any use at all, would be used to make imitation coffee and sausage that was sold at boarding houses. So, you know, that's awful, but it exemplifies this very different orientation to what gets discarded. One of the things that I found quite fascinating in your book was the number of words you came up with for trash. Yeah. Tell me where you came up with these words and and tell us some of them. That was one of the most challenging parts of writing this book was the trying to make it interesting to read uh, by using as many different words for garbage as I could. I got the some of some of the words. One of my favorite is rejectamenta. I love that word. It sounds so great. Which is yeah, it's great. I actually got that from another book on garbage written by Benjamin Miller which is a great book called Fat of the Land, and it's about garbage in New York City. But, you know, along those lines, I mean, you know, the way, wh- what's interesting is is the language. The language about garbage, the, the language of our waste is really telling, and, it, and, it, and it's, 
it, it reveals a lot about the way we conceptualize our waste. Because, for example, the way that we talk about the things that we throw away, household waste today, is it's, all, it's a language that's been very sanitized. You know, and there used to be these different categories of waste, um, which now have been collapsed into a single category, which is typically called municipal solid waste, or it's referred to as the waste stream. And, and I think that these things, you know, reveal the, the way that what we throw away gets treated as a technical problem. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a problem that, that needs to be put into the hands of professionals and they need to put these things in their proper place and then everything will be fine. What's interesting is in the past there were these different categories. There was rubbish, ash, and garbage. Those were the three main categories. And they referred to, rubbish referred to um, non-food waste. And then garbage was wet food waste, organic waste, and ash obviously was ash, but it also included, you know, used shoes, and, and there were different, you know, the categories were a little bit um, malleable. But what that reveals is, again, that the sorting of waste was routine. That was something that people always did. The real historical anomaly is not separating our waste, and that happens after World War II. And that's when these new kinds of ways of referring to waste as municipal solid waste, I mean, those ty- that type of language starts coming about after World War II. There's something else in there about constructing our waste as something, you know, it's embedded in this, in this sanitize, sanitizing language is is constructing our waste as something that's dirty and that you don't want to put your hands on, you don't want to touch, you don't want to dig through and scavenge and reuse and, and, you know, you don't stick your hand in the garbage can. And so I think it is, is useful to kind of unpack the way, you know, the, the semiotics of how, you know, how this works, like what, what these different words signify on a cultural level. And when waste is constructed as dirty, we're, we're less likely on an individual level to see the things that we throw away as useful and as something, as a resource, as something that we should put our hands on and that we should take and reuse and figure out how to keep around. But the way that we talk about waste today is very much about getting it out of the house and putting it into the waste stream so it can wash away. One of the things I found quite interesting was the history of the dump, when it's, how it started out as just a place where people would dump garbage and then how the landfill actually was developed by somebody in California in Fresno. Tell us a little bit about the development of the landfill, and then maybe we can move into the technology of trash. Yeah, the development of the landfill, the first sanitary landfill, which is the equi- the, the precursor to the modern day, what's referred to as a sanitary landfill. And the first one was built in Fresno, California, by Gene Vincennes, who was an engineer, uh, he built it in 1934. And what's interesting, I mean, he, he used a, a combination of technologies that he got mostly from the UK. Uh, so a lot of the trash processing techniques have been imported from, from European countries. And what he did was, I mean, basically the sanitary landfill consisted of uh, hauling garbage out to the edge of town and digging a ravine or finding an existing ravine and putting the garbage into that ravine and then covering it over with a layer of dirt at the end of each day, compacting it, compressing it into the ground, and then covering it over with a layer of dirt. And the compaction kept the air out, which kept 
decomposition down, which kept the smell down and kept rats out. The dirt also served that function as well, the dirt cover. So what what this method did, I mean, it was really significant because, and this didn't become a common method until after World War II. Jean Vincennes was drafted into the Army Corps of Engineers and helped write a manual that was used across the country uh, by the Corps of Engineers to train uh, the, the sanitation engineers at their domestic bases on how to build sanitary landfills. So all these all these engineers learned this method, and then after World War II, went home with this knowledge, and that's how the technology spread. Now, what's key about this technology is that it re- it relies on mixing all waste together. That's that's how it works most efficiently in uh, because collection is the most expensive part of waste. Handling is that economically or or decompositionally? E- economically, okay. It, it what what mixing waste together allows for is a streamlining of the process of collection and of disposal, and so what you get is um, simultaneously the development of the compaction truck, which is very compatible with the sanitary landfill, which relies on compaction, and so. When you have the compaction truck, you can economize each load. You can get more uh, garbage into each load. And this, so, so this technology is, was developed simultaneously. And the collectors would go out and, and collect the household garbage. Now, instead of doing separate trips, instead of um, not compacting the waste, uh, they, they, you know, and if you don't compact the waste, you can pull, you can pull things out. You can scavenge things and, and salvage things that, that if the waste is compacted, you simply can't do that because it's crushed and broken and mixed together. So, so with this new technology comes the engineering out of reuse, the engineering out of scavenging and separating. And so that, that is the sort of key element of uh, the sanitary landfill that, that sets it apart from previous disposal methods. Tell us a little bit, too, about the business model, how that changed during this time when we went to the sanitary landfill, because originally garbage was, was handled, especially in New York City, which he used seem, seemingly as kind of a test lab for the, to represent the rest of the country, <clears throat> from being handled by just, you know, some guy, two guys on the corner Mm-hmm. to being handled by major corporations. Tell us a little bit about how that business model works and was transformed and why. Garbage handling wasn't always a business. It is today. It's a 43.5 billion dollar business a year. So it's a huge industry. Uh, 40% of that industry is controlled by three corporations, Waste Management Incorporated, Republic Services, and Allied Waste services. And so these three corporations are, maybe people have heard of them, especially waste management. It's been around for, for over 30 years. They have, do- they have come to dominate uh, the waste handling industry through the same processes that we've seen in other industries that, that happened mainly during the 1980s with, with large corporations consolidating industries like with mergers and acquisitions. I mean, the same thing happened in the waste industry. But these corporations came about in the late 60s and early 70s. Uh, Browning, Ferris, and Waste Management were the first two. And before that, waste was handled by municipalities. They, it was a public service and funded by tax dollars. It's still funded by tax dollars, but the cities are now outsourcing that to these corporations. And why it's important 
to think about this change is that what I talk a lot about in my book, the reason that we have as many as as much waste as we do today in part is is the needs of manufacturers for us to consume as much as possible so that it keeps the economy growing. Now, that basic need for us to throw things away in order to to, to stoke the economy externalizes the the benefits, the economic benefits that manufacturers get out of it. They get to externalize the costs onto the environment and onto the public sector because we pay for waste disposal. We pay for the packaging, not only to buy the packaging, but we also pay to throw it away. So they profit twice on us. And this is an interesting point you make because this is uh, not dissimilar to what they're what's currently trying to be done to medical expenses in in that they're trying to get us to have medical savings accounts as opposed to right. medical insurance. It's the same process. It's already taken place in the world of trash, hasn't it? Yeah, definitely. What it means is that we're pressured in a way by manufacturers to to continue creating waste. There's there's definitely. I mean, everyone knows that the amount of disposable goods in our lives have increased dramatically. Over the last 30 years, the amount of garbage the U.S. produces has doubled. And we see it in our daily lives. We know. We see all the packaging. And so, so that's on, on the one side. Then on, on the trash uh, handling side, you've now got these corporations which are increasingly powerful in, in, in waste treatment. And these companies, like waste management, make more profits off of landfilling than all other waste company operations combined. So it's in their interest to get as much into the ground as possible. That's where they make their most profits. Now, it's important to step back and just say the, they're, they're corporations. They're mandated to, to give their shareholders the highest profits that they can. That's what they do. So if that's what they do, then they're incentivized to bury as much garbage as possible. That means that they're not incentivized to say, for example, compost to to help build a recycling infrastructure. That those things cost too much. So they're not going to do those things. Not because, you know, I mean, I'm sure there are plenty of people that work at waste management that love the environment and that believe what they're doing is important in terms of protecting the environment. I, I don't question that. But what I what I do see and what is plain uh, from the track record that companies like waste management have is that they, it is in their interest for us to produce ever greater piles of garbage. So you've got this sort of, you know, this pincher, move, pincer movement of these two. You know, you've got the manufacturers on the one side and the waste handling corporations on the other, both wanting us to throw away more and more stuff. I'd like to get back to the landfill just a little bit and talk about. If, could you describe to us the sanitary landfill with the bladder, the liner, how it's capped, claymax, all the different parts and layers? It's a pretty interesting piece of technology. It is an interesting piece of technology. It's something, I think it's it's important to, to contextualize it because this is a technology that's that's very new, actually. The, the modern landfill, which has a, a liner, and, uh, you know, a lot of people will have heard of, like, the clay liner, and then it has a plastic sheeting, and, and it has, you know, often it has a, a drainage system on top of that plastic sheeting consisting of, of rocks and, and um, uh, uh, mesh and, and different materials and dirt. And then, you know, underlying the, this drainage system is 
this stuff called Claymax, which is supposed to absorb and expand to prevent leaks uh, of these liner systems. And the plastic that they use Mm -hmm. is um, the same plastic that's used for milk jugs. It's a high-density polyethylene and HDPE. And, but it's, it's thicker uh, than a milk jug. The Environmental Protection Agency and landfill engineers are starting to admit that these liner systems won't last. Uh, initially, it was estimated that they might last as long as 50 years. Some people said even longer than that. But now the EPA has come out and said, these, this, these liners will definitely fail. We don't know when. Uh, it's not a question of if. It's a question of when. We don't know when, but it's going to be sooner rather than later. And, you know, with, with uh, many of, of these landfills, uh, you know, they, they contain a lot of very toxic substances. And, and uh, when you think about the, the things that you throw away every day from your house, when those things get mixed together, you know, batteries, uh, chlorine bleach, fluorescent, the contents of a fluorescent light bulb, electronic waste. You've got a real toxic stew brewing in these landfills. They're environmental time bombs. And we don't know what's going to happen with these liners. And there's no way of, of protecting them. I mean, if the, when they start leaking, you can't just go in and lift the landfill up and put a new liner in. That's not possible. So, so this is a real issue. The other, the other thing that I want to say is that when uh, the regulations were created by the EPA in 1991 for these new high-tech landfills, what's interesting is that the large garbage corporations supported this these tougher environmental standards. And this is something that um, when I first found out, I was sort of surprised by. But what what the, the backstory is, is that with these uh, higher tech systems of monitoring uh, leachate, which is the liquid waste and, and the rainfall that washes through the landfill, the, the liquid um, drainage off the landfill, and you know, so the collection and monitoring systems for leachate and the collection and monitoring systems for landfill gas, uh, these kinds of systems are very expensive. And so municipalities and small companies like you mentioned before, you know, the, the smaller mom and pop operations couldn't afford to install and maintain these systems. The only people that could afford to do this were these large corporations. And so these tighter environmental controls, ironically, have led to a consolidation of the waste industry. And, and the large corporations knew that in the early 90s. And, and that, was, that was a large reason why they encouraged this, uh, these new regulations to be passed by the EPA. What ostensibly seemed like something that was good for the environment, now we can start to see in the long run, and it's important to think about these environmental questions in the long run, because often we're so focused on the short term. We can see now in the long run that what's happening is that it's helped fuel the garbage uh, corporations, which which are undermining um, further reuse and, and a wiser use of, of the discards that we create. Tell us, give us an idea of the scale of one of these landfills. One of these places, uh, a, a pit with the bladder, the liner, the claymax, the plastic liner. Tell us, how, how big is that? Is that as big as a football field? Bigger? Smaller? They can be 100 acres big. They vary in size. It depends on, on uh, the landscape. You know, it depends on how they, they need to engineer it to fit into the landscape. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but they're 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 they can be as as long as a hundred acres long, and then they can be three hundred feet deep. So so they can be massive, um, and and they can be smaller. I mean, and what's happening is there there are now these new giant landfills called megafills, and this is the new. Uh, kind of wave in in burying our discards. And it's important to focus on landfills because 85% of what gets disposed of goes to landfills. So it's important that we are focusing on that because obviously um, incineration is a, is a factor too, but, but it is, um, it makes sense to talk about landfills because so much of what we get, of what we throw away gets sent to landfills. But so now there's these new megafills and what megafills are essentially are, uh, you know, where older landfills could take tens of, you know, tons, hundred tons of garbage a day. These landfills can take thousands of tons a day, 10, 13,000 tons of garbage in one day. So they have huge capacities and th- they're central to a new way of doing business that these corporations have come up with, um, which they've pioneered in New York City and and the Northeast, which is exporting waste. So you take waste that's generated in one city and you export it to an outer outlying rural region, often economically hollowed out and in need of of revenues. And so they they agree to have these giant landfills built there. And um, the companies that operate these landfills are they are operated by corporations because municipalities can't afford to to create these huge landfills like this uh, what what they do is they're they're able to achieve economies what's called economies of scale with these landfills and and that's allowing them to to achieve much higher levels of profitability than with the old style landfill where you had your landfill in your own backyard and you buried your waste you know, in the city or town where you made them. Which was a natural limiting factor. And in fact, this export has taken up a new level. You talk about going to underpolluted countries, which I think is a really fascinating term. Yeah, unfortunately, that's something that the the garbage corporations have picked up on. And that that's actually something that Larry Summers said when he was chief economist at the World Bank, he said that that we that we should send our waste to underpolluted countries and that that made economic sense. And it, it's obvious the social uh, injustice inherent in that statement and um, the racism inherent in that statement. And that's that's unfortunately what we're seeing happen today. And something that I think Californians might, appreciate is that and be a little bit shocked by is that 50 to 80 percent of the computers that you pay to have recycled in the U.S. get sent to China for reprocessing in unregulated environments. So 50 to 80 percent of the time when you pay to have a computer recycled, it gets sent to a place where uh, workers take it apart without any safety masks, maybe a pair of rubber gloves if they're lucky, and uh, they strip the the metals off of the circuit boards with chemicals, which which are then dumped into waterways. They burn the plastic circuit boards in the open air, 
And so, so they're incredibly, and this is called recycling. So these are incredibly toxic circumstances that are being created both environmentally and in terms of human health. And, and so we need to be really conscious of what, you know, what recycling means and, and what is actually happening to the things that, that leave our hands. I want to talk to you a little bit about planned obsolescence and the part that plays and then get into one of my favorite topics in the book, Keep America Beautiful, the Keep America Beautiful movement. So tell, let's talk a little bit about planned obsolescence because it plays an important part in uh, the, the cycle of consumption in garbage. Yeah, it does. It plays an integra- very, very central part. The, if you want to understand garbage today, you have to understand built-in obsolescence. And built-in obsolescence, simply put, is designing products to wear out faster than they need to, either through technological obsolescence, fashion obsolescence, um, or a combination of, of those two things. And built-in obsolescence was really ha- happened at a specific historic moment, and it's grown since then, but it's important to contextualize it historically. And that moment was the late 1950s. So after World War II, after the the streamlining of of manufacturing in the U.S. that happened during the war, the massive public investment in manufacturing and uh, the forced cooperation between producers and between labor and and management, um, which led to the Fordist manufacturing engine that happened after World War II, where the U.S. was making uh, most of the world's goods um, by, by the late 1950s, you know, and, and, and that incredibly productive Fordist manufacturing line was met with, as everyone knows, um, huge amounts of savings and pent-up consumer desire. And so everyone was buying after World War II. They were buying cars and houses and appliances. And by the late 1950s, markets were saturated and everyone had everything they needed. Japan was recovering. Germany was recovering. The U.S. manufacturers were starting to to face more competition globally. And at home, people, you know, there was a, there was a lull in consumption. And they started, they started realizing that, that what they, what they needed. And, and there are a number of documents that I found that talk about how very self-consciously U.S. manufacturers wanted U.S. consumers. They, the, the real trick was, you know, to get people to consume at a pace that could match production levels. So the problem wasn't production. The problem was consumption. They could make, they could make anything you wanted as fast as you wanted, but, but the, the key was to get people to buy all that stuff. There's a famous science fiction story by Frederick Pohl called The Midas Touch about, it was written in the late 50s about a consumer culture where people are not paid to work but simply to consume. And if you fall behind in your consumption, you're penalized for this. So the people who live the richest are actually working the hardest and must have been born in that society of consumption. But so, so what happened was, you know, I think that that type of story, you know, catches the the real, you know, the zeitgeist at, at that time because um, what happened was that manufacturers were very clear 
that what they needed to do is they needed to get people to throw things away. And so at the end of the 1950s, at a plastics industry conference, you have this executive standing at the podium announcing to his fellow plastics makers, your future is in the garbage wagon. So they were very aware that more more wasting would lead to more consuming. And so then they started designing products to wear out faster than they needed to, durable goods. Um, they started making whole new lines of products that were designed from the, the outset to be disposable. That's, you know, when there was this plastics maker in Leominster, Massachusetts, that made uh, Foster Grant sunglasses. Before that, they had been an industrial supplier of plastics, and they realized that they could start making, you know, disposable sunglasses, cheap disposable sunglasses that people would use for a short period of time and then throw them away and buy a new pair to, to have a new look. And, and like these whole, you know, whole, whole new markets opened up with this, this approach. And also uh, one of the categories of disposables that, that was really um, seized on at this moment was packaging. And this is when packaging becomes a really huge uh, uh, focus of manufacturing attention. And at the time, a lot of packaging maker, a lot of uh, commodity manufacturers may also made their own packaging, like Coca-Cola made their own bottles at this time. And so if you consumed more packaging, the, you know, the, the manufacturer made more money. Do you have any figures? It seems to me right now that a lot of the stuff we buy the packaging is actually more expensive part of the product than the product itself. Do you have any figures about that, or, or is that just an intuition we all have to live with? It's it's hard to find those figures exactly, but I do know that after World War II, manufacturers started spending almost as much on packaging and advertising as they spent on making the products that they were selling. So there there is i mean it's true that that huge amounts of money and and resources go into packaging and it's important also to point out that packaging is a commodity we don't think of it as a commodity because we've be, we've grown so used to it uh as, as the substance that's just a part of our daily lives, but it's something that contains n in, uh, natural resources and human labor the same way that, that any other kind of commodity like, uh, you know, a, t a cell phone or a book or, you know, a shirt or anything that you have that you use in your life, except that we, we accept that we're going to use it for a brief period of time and then discard it, whether we put it in a recycling bin or, or a garbage can. And that's something that we really need to question Tell me about the fascinating history of Keep America Beautiful and why it's evil. <laughs> Keep America Beautiful fits into the picture right at this moment in history. In, in the 1950s, they formed in 1953, and they formed in response to a law that was passed in the state of Vermont. Not The, the law that was passed said that no disposable glass bottles could be sold in the state. And this was a law that was, so it completely banned the sale of, of throwaway glass bottles. It wasn't passed by environmentalists. It was passed by dairy farmers whose cows were accidentally swallowing glass bottles that, that drivers would toss out their car windows. And these cows would accidentally eat these glass bottles and die. And so it was just dairy farmers who made up a large portion of the legisla state legislature just protecting their, their income, you know, protecting their self-interest, passing this law, banning these bottles. Well, the beverage container industry and beverage makers really 
you know, went on the defense. They, they really said, like, this can't happen anywhere else. So they formed this group, Keep America Beautiful. And Owens, Illinois Glass, American Can, the makers of the first disposable can and, and bottle, uh, Coca-Cola, Dixie Cup, Atlantic Richfield Oil, uh, which, you know, was, was making plastics. They are, you know, connected to the, the plastics industry. They got together with many other companies and, and formed Keep America Beautiful and immediately embarked on a public relations offensive to, to shift uh, public consciousness and shift the public debate away from industry. I mean, there was also a debate going on, you know, when you look back at the journals, um, at the industry, packaging industry journals, there, there's a real debate going on about uh, they know that they're making a lot of garbage. They know they're making, they're, they're making products that are garbage waiting to happen. And they know that there's going to be some kind of backlash. And so they're trying to figure out how they can head off this backlash and keep America beautiful becomes central in this operation. And what they do is they create this character uh, called the litter bug and they create this, um, which was something that they borrowed from a beautification group in Pennsylvania, but they made it into what it became. And, and they also take up this category of debris called litter and they make that the central focus. So, so they shift the, the focus off of industry and it's, super toxic devastation of the environment and and the way that it that it uses natural resources and and shift it onto the individual and say no you're the one that's the source of garbage the consumer it's your selfish choices that have led us down this road of um, having litter everywhere and having garbage having so much garbage so it's not the choices that we're making as producers it's and and in the production process, those aren't those aren't that's not what we need to focus on. We need to focus on individual habits and individual behavior in this, the framework of of civic, you know, being a good citizen um, and being a good civic participant. And that's what they did, and they did it very successfully. And it sort of reached um, its peak in the 1970s with this ad that a lot of people will remember with with Iron Eyes Cody shedding a single tear you know, in a litter-strewn landscape wearing his moccasins and, you know, saying people start pollution, people can stop it. So it echoes this whole sentiment about that, that the real source of pollution, of garbage, of environmental devastation is the individual consumer and you should feel guilty and, and that's where the discussion should stop. And so Keep America Beautiful has done an, an amazing job at managing our conception and conceptualization of garbage, of what garbage is, of what it signifies, of what it means. And, and they've effectively kept the pressure off of industry and they've kept people from asking, you know, they're a big promoter of recycling. Well, they've changed the start point, haven't they? Because it, the perception is now that garbage starts with us when it leaves our hands and heads towards the trash right. can or actually towards the, as they put it, towards the street. When, in fact, it starts when they put their product in it. It starts when they make decisions about that they want to they manufacture products that uh, are going to, that are, that are meant to be disposable. That's when it starts. I noticed throughout your book a theme of Marxism running. You quote Karl Marx a few times. So tell me how this Marxist uh, philosophy plays in your book and what kind of reaction you've received? It has 
am I correct? Is there, is there a Marxist uh, f- uh, thought behind all this? There, there is a Marxian analysis that I have to to the situation. What that analysis is, I know the writings of of Karl Marx mean different things to different people, and um, but to me, what they're most useful for is understanding how the economic system that we live in works, is understanding how capitalism works. And I think, in my opinion, that's what he did the best, was just just laying out, this is how capitalism works. And, and that's what I'm interested in, in from, from using his work. I mean, that's, that's how I use it in my book. Because the argument and the analysis that I have is that capitalism needs garbage. It needs us to throw things away. So if we want to deal with the crisis, you know, what, what a lot of people call a crisis of garbage, then we need to start talking about the economic system that produces so much garbage, that relies on so much waste. I'm wondering, have you received any blowback from, from the Marxist, from the from quoting Marx? I mean, it, this, is seen, this is not a political climate where Karl Marx is a welcome figure, so I'm wondering if that's uh, colored the reception of the book at all. A little bit, but not very much. Tell us a little bit about the history of incineration. I want to talk just a little bit about burning it. Uh-huh. The first incinerator was built in New York City in the in the mid nineteenth century, and again, this was a technology that was imported from Europe, and it was initially. I mean, this is something that's interesting because today, so much of the new the newest technologies in burning waste are um, promoted as a source of green energy because they can harness the 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 heat created by burning the waste and and tra- transferred into entered into power production and that is something that's always been the case the very first uh, incinerator that was built in the US the earliest incinerators built in in Europe were also power generating stations and so the just to to um contextualize these things historically i think is really useful so that's nothing new um that's something that we get you know we we get told is a new development. It's not new. Um, Part of why, so incineration was introduced in the mid-19th century and kind of had a hard time. It never really picked up. It, 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 uh, more plants were built during the 1930s for various reasons, but then, and, and were funded with, with New Deal uh, dollars and labor during that, that period. But then, um, basically, you know, it's, it's never taken off because it's so capital intensive. It's so expensive and it actually requires more labor than a landfill, uh, more skilled labor than a landfill. You can operate a, a landfill. I mean, in, in the ni- in, in the 20th century, you could operate a landfill with two workers. Um, you couldn't do that with an incinerator. And so it, it, and also because energy was so cheap in the U.S. There wasn't a, there wasn't a need, um, you know, to, to get the energy from an incinerator. So, so there were a number of reasons why it didn't take off. A, a key point in the story of incineration is what happened in the late 1980s, which was that there was uh, the implementation of the Resource Conservation and Recovery Act, which was initially passed in 1976. Uh, there was a provision of the RCRA that said, 
set minimum safety standards for land disposal sites. Now, this was implemented in the mid 1980s, mid to late 1980s, and it resulted in shutting down somewhere between 70 and 90 percent of all land disposal sites in the U.S., which is a massive you know, it, it created a huge crisis, a real crisis over where to put the garbage at that point. And, and many people remember the Key and Sea, also named the Mo- Mobro, which was sailing up and down this garbage barge, which was sailing up and down the East Coast and then went down to Haiti and then, you know, went all these different places trying to unload its, its ash at, at some land disposal site and, and you know, eventually dumped, dumped its load at sea illegally. And, um, but, but so that, that moment was a real moment of crisis and the incineration industry and many old line environmental groups like the Sierra club raised their hands and said, burning is the solution. That's what we should do. And, um, the old line and environmental groups and endorsed it because they said it was better than burning things in the open and better than you know some of the worst scenarios however it wasn't better and it's not better than not making as much garbage in the first place and it's not better than recycling and so and so there were these um, massive public community protests and resistance to you know there was this plan to build over 600 incinerators around the U.S. in the late 1980s and communities in, in places like South Central Los Angeles and places like Williamsburg, Brooklyn, and New York City, uh, diverse communities of low-income, working-class, people of color came together and started and educated themselves about how incineration worked and what the dangers were and fought these incinerators. And this is the beginning of the environmental justice movement, uh, which is very key because they started making these connections between race and class and toxicity and where um, the society's wastes were being dumped, who, they, who, who, the, who those wastes were being dumped on. And, um, and so what ended up coming out of these fights was that people who uh, elected officials who endorsed things like municipal curbside recycling were elected. And then we saw this proliferation of municipal recycling programs in the early 1990s. So that's where all that came from. Now, you seem kind of of two minds about recycling, though. Y- you Obviously, it's better than the alternative, but it's not as good as as it's made out to be, is it? Yeah, no, I'm not of two minds. I'm very clear about it. Huh. Recycling is not enough. It's not a solution on its own. It's better than burning and burying, for sure. Uh, but it's important to be realistic about the fact that it's not a real long-term solution on its own. It must be part of a larger program of, of change. I think a lot of people in the United States get discouraged very easily, and I think that's something that recycling kind of fosters because it gives you the sense it's it's not unlike the act of consumption it gives you it gives you a sense that if you just put your plastic bottle in the right bin that everything's okay you know if you just buy the right product then everything will be okay well the answers aren't that simple and that doesn't mean that that they're insurmountable that doesn't mean that that we should then be hopeless it just means that we need to be realistic and educate ourselves about what the other possibilities are and then fight for those. And, you know, in the 1970s, there were, there were more radical calls for 
things like product durability and and you know greater serviceability, which means we could repair things. Which means that it would be cheaper to repair your broken DVD player than it would be to buy a new one. That seems you know I don't think that's very radical, but in today's climate, it is. You know that's a pretty tall order. And but I think those are the types of things that we need to be talking about. And also. Um, you know, the story of, of um, this is something that I write about in the book, the story of the demise of the refillable bottle, the reusable bottle. Um, if, if we reuse bottles, we'd have tremendous, you know, decrease in the amount of waste that we make. Germany uh, mandates uh, that 72% of all beverages are sold in refillable bottles. They, they, they produce hundreds of thousands of tons less garbage a year. They uh, save massive amounts of energy. Um, it creates jobs. There's an, uh, one study says that if Germany switched to 100% refillable bottles, it would create 27,000 new jobs. So, and, and also, um, the system in Germany is massively popular. 69% of all Germans prefer to take their bottles back. And, and also, the popularity of recycling. So, refillable, you know, the refillable is, is an important thing to, to reconsider. But, but one more thing about recycling people want to do something. They, they want that gives you something to do. They want, yeah, they want to play a role. And when recycling programs get halted, um, like in New York in 2002, uh, the recycling was stopped because of budget uh, constraints. The, the public was furious. People want to do something. And I don't think that they're necessarily attached to recycling. I mean, that's the form it takes because that's kind of the only thing we've got right now but but well what else is there if people well you know s- switching to refillable bottles you know the, the idea and again you know this is part of what i what i like to talk about are, are the sort of the ways that we've constructed this narrative about how we think about our garbage and about where our garbage came from uh the part of this narrative is that we switched from refillable bottles to single-use bottles because of consumer demand for convenience. But in fact, people always preferred refer- refillable bottles. And, and the real motor behind that change was the beverage industry's desire to consolidate. And they couldn't do that with re- the refillable bottle system because of the geographical constraints that that system put on them. It, pro- it prohibited them and constrained them from achieving larger economies of scale and taking over larger market share. And so explain that a little bit because okay. it's from because it's because the bottles themselves had to be shipped somewhere and cleaned and refilled, right? Right. So what happened was you had local bottling plants and the trucks that delivered say the soda from that bottling plant had to go back to that plant with the empties. So there was this geographical limit that that imposed on on how how much that beverage maker could grow. They couldn't take a greater market because they had this, you know, they had to bring the bottles back to the to the factor you know, to the the bottling plant. So if they could if they could get rid of refillable bottles and they didn't have to bring the empties back, they could shut down the local uh, plants, open large regional hubs, and have total flexibility with distribution. And and that's what happened. So in in 1947, you have over 5,000 soda makers in the U.S. By 1970, you have 1,600 left. Uh, in 1950, you've got more than 500 beer makers. By 1974, only 64 remain. So this is and and the EPA did a study in the 1970s that said that the switch from refillable bottles to single-use bottles 
facilitated the consolidation of the beverage industry. So, so these are the kinds of things that we just need to lift the cover off of and look at. You know, these are, these are the changes um, that, that have come from the needs of manufacturers, but we've been told that those changes are the result of what we wanted as consumers, except that I want to buy my beverages in refillable bottles, and I can't. So that's, that's, that's an example of the market, you know, not delivering the most choice. We have been speaking with Heather Rogers. Her book is Gone Tomorrow, The Hidden Life of Garbage. Thank you very much, Heather. Thanks for having me.